BTB listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's episode. Listen, if this episode inspires you, do me a favor and take five seconds to shoot me a like and subscribe to the podcast. There are several more exciting guests that are in the pipeline, and I just can't thank you enough for your continued support, and let's keep paying the mission forward. Let's get into it. On today's episode of the BTB Project, I'd like to introduce you to one of my greatest mentors and a guest that will help you uncover the secrets of peak performance and explore the extraordinary world of intentional flow and getting in the zone. With a remarkable career spanning decades, he has dedicated his life to studying dynamics of peak performance. Through his groundbreaking coaching and performance model, he empowers athletes to intentionally create flow and coaches them to guide their athletes through life-changing practice. As an esteemed author, he has written books such as How to Play Tennis in the Zone, Welcome to the Zone, A Peak Performance Redefined, and Captivated Sport Enthusiasts Worldwide. His innovative concepts have graced the pages of esteemed publications and inspired countless athletes to unlock their true potential. His principles have found universal applicability as showcased in the riveting presentation on visual dynamics in combat to the U.S. Navy SEALs. Get ready to embark on an extraordinary journey into peak performance and transformative power of intentional flow. Scott Ford, welcome. To the BTB project. Don't be afraid of the dark. Be careful with stars. Not every light is gonna guide you. Welcome to the BTB project, designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt, a former athlete and motivational coach. I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a so high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living out my dreams. If I'm waking up, it's in a foreign land. You know, it's not often that the BTB project gets to have people that just not only have impacted my life, but have impacted so many people's lives in the state of Colorado and across the country. And I'm just incredibly humbled and honored to bring what I believe one of the greatest minds to tennis and fast-moving ball sports with his expertise. I'd like to welcome Mr. Scott Ford to the BTB Project. Thank you, Coleman. Very nice to be here. Thank you. There's been a lot of exciting horizons on your front with, again, another book writing. I know that... uh, You've come across a lot of opportunities to put words on a piece of paper and it's impacted so many people like myself and, and other players. And I would love for you to maybe start off by sharing with the listeners on what you, what you're up to with uh, wake up, grow up, rise up the evolution of coaching consciousness. And I think it's tremendous what you're doing, knowing that you're impacting me as a coach and I can't wait to also share how you've impacted me and others as, as a player. So tell us more about the book. Well, Wake Up, Grow Up, Rise Up, we 
call Woogaroo because it's just kind of a fun word. And I love acronyms, but yes. <laughs> it's about the kind of semi-autobiographical sort of because I've been coaching since I was 12 years old. I, I actually got my first coaching job when I was 12 due to this. My brothers were in teaching tennis at this Aurora Park and Rec, and ah. I, I was shagging balls for them, and they were in high school, and I was like 11 or 12. I can't remember, but it was um, real early on. And I, the coach that was the main coach at the Park and Rec thing had these four little kids that were causing all this trouble. So he, he gave me some rackets and some balls and said, Scott, go on down there and keep those kids out of our hair. And what he didn't know is that every time I was playing in a tournament, I was asking the tennis pro at the club if I could watch them teach. You know, Denver Country Club pros and Cherry Hills Country Club pros and all those guys were, they were very accommodating. I'd say, sure, Scott, come over, sit down, just stay out of the way. So what I would do is just sort of memorize everything that they did. And then I'd go practice it on the wall. And I really memorized how they coached and I, all the little drills that they would do in the different ways. So I took these four little kids down to the end court and gave them each racket and started them doing some stuff that I had seen guys teaching little kids. And it was working. And the guy that was running the program came down and said, Scott, where did you learn this stuff? Right. So I told him what I had been doing. He says, you want a job? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> So I was sort of hired on as the guy that would babysit the little kids, but also teach them how to how to play tennis. And by the end of the summer, I was teaching some adults. So they were paying, you know, I don't remember what it was, but it was enough money for me to buy my own way into the tennis tournaments that I was playing on the weekend. Right. So I just kind of kept being a player and a coach and a player and a coach throughout college, just kind of doing that. And I, I really got on to some good jobs right away because I could copy these guys' ways of teaching. You mm. know, I could just memorize what they did and I'd use it and I'd use what worked and I'd teach what worked. And I was, so I was teaching the most advanced stuff around at the time. And so I got on as assistant pros with some of these guys at the country clubs. And um, then I got my own first head coaching job when I was 18 years old, I actually started, you know, the Youth Tennis Foundation of Colorado? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I did the pilot program for them back in the way back. And it was, uh, it was really kind of chaotic. Let's put it that way. <laughs> there, were, there were like two or 300 kids. That oh, wow. To the George Washington High School courts between eight o'clock and noon and it was just a zoo and we had to figure out ways to teach that many people and I had like three assistants in myself and we figured it out and then I wrote up a, a thing at the end of it saying you know this is what I think we ought to do with first of all was get more courts and then get more teachers and yada yada but then at the same time I got my first head pro job at Skyline Acres Swim and Tennis Court oh yeah tennis, you know, swim and tennis right at right on uh Monaco down from the Colorado Athletic Club, Monaco. That's right. So I was teaching there and I was 18 and just kept at it from there. And it was fun because I, I, I really was into advancement in the tennis profession. So, yeah. you know, how competitive that is. And so I got my USPTA and I did all of the things that you had to do to get certified in that because I wanted to make it my profession. And then after college, I went 
to Aspen and started teaching there and sort of got lost in drugs and alcohol and all of the stuff that can happen to you up there. Mm. And it, it just turned out that that was a, something that really made a mess out of my life. But at the same time, I, I came out of it and I, I did all of the stuff that you're supposed to do, the 12 step programs and yada, yada. And, um, and, and I still do. And I had a chance to work with, um, athletes who are having drug and alcohol abuse problems. And that's been really part of, of what I do on the side. It, it's yeah. more because I know what these guys are going through and it's terrible. And so it, it, if you can talk to them because you've been there, sort of done that and you come through, it's a lot more effective than sending them off to a psychologist who just knows about it, but doesn't, hasn't been there. And Scott, I, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, part of the reason on how our paths have crossed is, you know, after shortly after finishing my college tennis career, I I got into full-time coaching and was able to find my way back to, to Boulder with one of my greatest mentors, Kendall, uh, coach Kendall Mm -hmm. there at Rocky mountain tennis center. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, uh, one, you know, I knew that we came across each other a few times when you were at Inverness, when I was a junior and being able to be back in that setting, coaching with coach Kendall and watching you lead some sessions on how to be in the zone. And one thing for me too, to make this full circle is I appreciate your vulnerability sharing what happened to you in Aspen because I'm a child of an alcoholic. I lost my mom to to alcohol when I was 20 and a lot of the stuff that I was navigating in my life has been, um, I would say the tennis court has been a place for me to allow myself to not be so fixated on the disease that took my mom and all of a sudden it's been almost a sanctuary to give back and to create an environment that I wanted to make sure that any kid that ever came on my court or any opportunity that I had to give back to others, that it would be a direct reflection of what I might have not experienced when I was a kid and being able to be that positive impact and to take a, a negative, dark moment in your life and find a way to learn from it, overcome it, and pay it forward in a positive way. It actually makes sense to me more now how the zone has has happened because I think being in the zone is one thing, but one thing that I admire you for a lot, Scott, is the positive affirmations, the, the affirmness of being in the zone, of being in a, a, a conscious state of mind that's positive is not only helpful for forehands and backhands, but it's helpful in life. So I'd love for you to speak to maybe how some of these trials and tribulations in your life became the igniter to some of the concepts that you're teaching now as a coach. I'd love to. I, I mean, that's kind of what Wuguru is about. But really, the, the, tennis, the tennis part was like my uh, tennis was a lifesaver for me. It, it really was where I, I felt grounded. And I felt like, you know, I could be myself and I, um, and I loved competition and I loved winning. I was all of the same thing. I, I, all the stuff that we go through, 
when we're playing tennis as kind of a dualistic sport, me versus you, you versus me, you know, my team versus your team. We grew up with that and we get a, a, a certain amount of self-development through that, but it's all egoic self-development throughout the, you know, these stages of development we go through. And I got to the point where I was just getting tired of teaching ground strokes and technique and tactics and strategies and all of that sort of stuff. And then I, through a sort of a conscious coincidence where I was having a lot of trouble with my timing, I did this little game where I just imagined this big imaginary window in front of me and I was just not going to let the ball get past it. So it made my timing of contact very consistent all mm. the time, but it also put me in the zone. Right. And when I showed other people how to do this, it put them in the zone too. And it, it's noticeable. You go out there, you've taught people and showed them how to do this. It's very noticeable when they shift out of their normal performance state, which is dualistic, into this mm. peak performance state, which is actually a non-dual state of awareness. And and it's it's way different from our normal way of being aware of the field in which we're playing. And sort of like think of of the way we grew up. The playing process was to watch the ball and then hit the ball. Right. And then this playing process that I was stumbled onto. I mean, just to fix my timing was a watch your window and then defend your window. But right. that's actually a non-dual playing process, whereas watch the ball hit the ball is a dualistic playing process. And those are humongous paradigm changes in terms of what's going on with your conscious state. And that heightened state of awareness you experience when you're playing in the zone is actually a reflection of non-dual awareness. It's, it's the embodiment of non-dual awareness. Mm. And so that's fine if it comes along randomly, you know, which is usually like it was for me when I was growing up. It was like I'd get in the zone once in a while and I'd play my socks off and go, wow, this is really cool. And then I'd try to replicate it the next day and I never could do it. It was sort of like, hmm. And the things I remember about playing in the zone were that you were concentrating really well yep. and that I was seeing the ball really well. And that it felt effortless, you know, those those sorts of things that are all part of the flow state characteristics are were happening. And I didn't really know anything about them other than that's what it felt like when I was in the zone. So when when this happened to me and I showed the guy I was playing with at the time exactly what I was doing, because he just went, whoa, Scott, what's going on? All of a sudden you look like you're in the zone. Yeah. And I said, well, I am. Yeah. <laughs> he said, here's what I'm doing. And it turns out he was a, a clinical psychologist. And so he got in the zone too, doing it. And we had a great hit back where we were like at midcourt, you know, which was one of the lucky things about this is we were starting at midcourt, not baseline to baseline. Right. Because the visual field wasn't so much. So right. I, he got in the zone, I got in the zone. We just were, we'd hit like 50 volleys in a row. It was just cool. And when he got done, I said, were you in the zone? And he goes, yeah. And I said, me too. And I said, you're the psychologist. What the hell is going on? <laughs> and he just went, don't know. We do not know what is going on. This is back in the late 70s now. Yeah. And he's, we know the zone is there. We just don't know how to make it happen. 
And in fact, back then, the, uh, the thought process and the conventional wisdom was you cannot make a selfless state happen through self-will, mm. which makes really good sense. Yes. It's, I was willing myself to do this thing of focusing on nothing out here in front of me, an imaginary window, and then playing tennis, just doing that. So I, I knew that that was not true, that that I could see why they were saying that, because we were never taught to do anything but watch the ball. Right. And that's what was so interesting is when I had that opportunity to really dive into the concept of being in the zone. And it's amazing because, I mean, I played I played Division One college tennis. I played tennis at a high level, but I, I didn't really truly know what the zone concept was. Yeah. And it was after really my, the peak of my playing career is where I l- really learned this, it, it was this effortlessness, this calmness mm-hmm. that I've always wanted to experience it, but I always tried to will my way there rather mm-hmm. than simplify it. And I think what was really neat, and as you kind of mentioned earlier, is being in the zone is not just going back to the baseline and having this happen through ground strokes. It's actually starting with your mini tennis and then slowly scooting back because our, our perception, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the periphery vision, being able to be conscious of your window, imaginary piece of glass, is something that you have to train, just like yeah. your muscle, just like anything else. But what was so neat that week in Boulder that I was with you guys was being able to watch these kids have the light bulb moment, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can see this kind of subconscious release and this, uh, this effortlessness release, this calmness release. And it's just beautiful to watch. We're always enamored by watching a a Roger Federer or Nadal or a Novak and watching those guys play at the highest level in slow motion. One Mm -hmm. thing that you notice with their body with these awesome cameras and 4K televisions is Mm -hmm. they're in a state of effortlessness. Oh, yeah. They're performing at a high level, but they are doing it because they've trained themselves to be calm in mm-hmm. very chaotic, you know, being, being on the battlefield of a tennis court. Right. So yeah. I'd love for you to maybe speak about, you know, the imaginary window. It, it's such a back then when you were introducing this was such an unconventional way of teaching yeah. the game of tennis. Was it hard <laughs> to have people understand what you were trying to tell them when you're telling them to look at something that didn't exist? I won't say the words that were when I first presented this to, at a USPTA local meeting. Yeah. I brought some of my books, which is Design B, How to Play Tennis and Zone. That's the first one I wrote. And so I put some books out and I was going to sell them and, you know, try to get this stuff going. And one of the, my fellow pros went over to the books. They were laying out on the table and I was behind him. He didn't know I was behind him. And he went over and he picked up the book 
and he looked at it and he said, this is the dumbest effing thing I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, then he turned around and, you know, awkward. <laughs> and it was, it was sort of like, I said, Hey, you know, don't knock it till you've tried it. Come on out on the court with me and then make your judgment call. But I said, right now, you don't even know anything about what this talks about. Yeah. And he did, you know, and, and then he, he apologized afterwards. And he, he actually became a sort of a proponent of this a little bit longer down the line. But, you know, you, you, you were talked about that light bulb moment watching these kids do that. That's the wake up yeah. of wake up, grow up, rise up. The grow up comes when you do this intentionally where you start playing in the zone on purpose. And that's what we call flow by choice, not flow by chance. Mm. And this, this is kind of a, a thing that you witnessed during that week you were there was these kids waking up and then it's up to them to continue to do it in order to grow up into this non-dual state of awareness. And some of the kids will, will do it. They'll, they'll really get into it. You were one of the ones that got into it. Others will sort of sit the fence and go, I don't know about this. I'm pretty good watching the ball. I'm not going to go watch in the window when I can be that good watching the ball. And that can lead all the way up to like the professional level players that are still watching the ball. But guys like Federer and, and the top level players, they have a way of, of softening their focus and being able to see the ball come into focus. And I don't know that they use this exact technique, but it's just shifting your focus from kind of a hard focus on the ball back and forth to a soft focus on your contact zone where you let the wind ball come into focus. You actually see contact. Yep. And they told you that you can't see contact. Well, that's crap. You can too. It just looks like a yellow in yellow out flash. Yep. Like a, you know, Kendall has a perfect name. He calls it the yellow flash. Yep. And it's, it's really when you're seeing that you're seeing contact. And when you're seeing contact, you're probably going to make good contact. Right. When you're seeing the ball out there someplace before when you hit it, you may not make good contact. You might. depend on how many thousands of balls you watched coming at you like that. And these kids would, would play this little imaginary game. And once they kind of got into it and started doing it and doing the feedbacks and all the things that go along with it, they would get in the zone and they would play really well to their, it's kind of their full potential that day, that place. It's sort of like that experience of their own full potential. And you talk about lighting them up. It really does light them up. And that's that wake up call. And once you do that, then you can help them to grow up into this sort of non-dual human development. It's different from their dualistic egotistical self-development mm. into this non-dual higher order self-development, the authentic self, the true self, the soul, you know, it's all the woo-woo stuff that um, they frowned upon back, back in the day. And, um, but it's not considered that anymore. I mean, there's so much mental, emotional and flow state training going on nowadays um, that it's, it's part of the, it's part of the the whole tennis culture yeah. and it's actually becoming part of the athletic culture, the sport culture as a whole. And it's global stuff. I know guys in uh, this Evo sports collective is one of the things that um, it's like B2B. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's 
the project. It's like yeah. the same thing. But all of us, there were four of us old white guys that were doing this stuff <laughs> way, way back. And we kind of got together and started this evolutionary sports collective. And it's growing into it's becoming very diverse and very inclusive. All of the things that we we needed to do to help it to grow and and to be able to put this message out to to athletes and you know businesses whatever. So what you're doing, Coleman, is just so on the forefront of coaching globally. It it really is. And having watched this for the last sixty years and actually modeled different coaching models for how to do this. I'm real aware of of where the forefront of coaching is. Uh, that doesn't mean the world champions and all of that. That means the forefront of human performance and development is out here in this area of non-dual human development. And when you're doing some of that stuff, which is exactly, that's the tier two stuff. Okay. Tier one stops at the zone. Yep. Tier two starts at the zone. Ah, the yep. way to think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and, one thing that's really fascinating about about the book when I was when I was reading it and where there's some parallel between your work in tier two and and my work in tier two is that there was a lot of question and answers right being able to have have those questions being asked and having your responses and the BTB project is actually an acronym for built to be I used to be given a nickname growing up called Big Teddy Bear, and I was 5'10", 325 pounds, and everyone used to make fun of me for my weight, Mm -hmm. and I hated feeling like that, and that was my nickname, Big Teddy Bear, and I just wanted to take that acronym and make it something into a positive, but more importantly, that question, what are you built to be, is the question that I lead with to anybody that I'm helping on the court, anybody that I'm coming across in life, because when you ask that question, it creates um, just this whole different demeanor in somebody to watch them verbalize their goals, watch them verbalize their dreams, and to just listen. So mm-hmm. I would love for you to speak to where did this, you know, kind of you know open-ended question and and the way that you framed this book, how did that instill in your life long before you wrote this? Well, just doing this literally every day of my life as a tennis pro from 1978 on, um, it it kind of taught me what I was built to be. And Um, because I, I had this sense that this was more than me in my normal performance state. It was greater than, you know, and playing in the norm and then playing in the zone is greater than that. And then you go along and you're in the zone for a little while. And then just when you realize you go, God, I'm really playing well, then it goes away. And you go back to less than playing in the zone. So you've got this experience that's a normal experience, and then you've got this greater than experience, and then you've got the back to less than experience. And that in and of itself, I did that enough times, and I mean eight to 10 hours a day, every day of the week for all of the years that I've been teaching. Mm. And I got to the point to go, I'd rather be this 
than what I was before. Mm. And that started to encompass also getting clean and sober, um, working with other athletes that were having the same problems. It got into me being more than just a guy that showed people how to play tennis in the zone. That was the start of it. But then what that really means to human development, I wanted to be somebody that could teach that. And so I was I was sort of like, maybe I was born to be exactly what I am right now. And I'd like to think that because I, I know what it means to be I am. Mm. And, and that is... Um, you know that that's my interpretation or my answer to your question it's if you can if you can grow into what you want to be what you were born to be i feel like i've done that yeah yeah and and you know what a beautiful project you've got going that can open this up for kids especially at these really impressionable ages living in this terrible terribly yeah. complex time to, to help them to understand, you know, born, what were you born to be? What a great question. You know, they're going to just look at you cross-eyed for a minute and go, <laughs> you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy's teaching me something, that, you know, it doesn't have to do with footwork. Right. And, you know, no, and it's, <laughs> it's really neat because I'll give you an example, you know, and, and most of my work as a coach has been in the high school sector. Mm-hmm. I just wrapped up my, my 16th year of coaching high school tennis and I'm a assistant over at, at Valor Christian now or oh, to age myself, my son, he's 17 yeah. this month. Yeah, uh, there you go. So he's over there and far from tennis, he's a cross country and, and track guy, but nonetheless, uh, I've been able to over the years actually work with a lot of exchange students and oh, nice. I had an exchange student that was uh, from Ukraine. And he was out here about three years ago and out in Ukraine. I don't know if you knew this, but some of these kind of rural European countries, it uh, gets a little tough with, um, you know, being able to find courts and you actually have to pay 10 uh, equivalent to 10 us dollars to play on an outdoor tennis court. That's public in Ukraine. So nonetheless, he won a uh, competition of 10,000 applicants that got the opportunity to come to the United States. I think seven of them got chosen to be an exchange student in the United States for a year. And I just remember working with Mark and I was fortunate enough to have him on the podcast because I asked him that very question when he got here to the United States is what are you built to be? You know, what are you built to become? And he said, that, you know, he wants to be the best version of himself as a tennis player, but he wants to get out of his comfort zone and learn how to push himself. That's what his goal was. And I never thought, Scott, that after that conversation, two weeks after Russia declared the invasion on Ukraine, that he would have turned 18 years old that his mom and his dad and his two brothers would have to go to another country to be safe and that he would have to stay and fight for his country. And I'll never forget actually having him text me the moment that he found that out. And he said, all he said to me, Scott, was thank you. What happened to me on the tennis court in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, 
for those three months that I got to spend with you as my coach has given me the confidence and the resiliency to take on whatever I have to do to protect my family and to protect my country. So this built-to-be movement, this built-to-be mission that, yes, that's my catchphrase for what I'm doing, but it's, it's really what has ignited what you've done many years ago as well. And that's where I give you so much credit, despite a lot of those weird looks or people kind of scratching their head being like, what, what is this guy doing? You, you stuck to what you believed in, you stuck to your passion, you stuck to your purpose. And that's why it's been so instrumental in my life. And I'll be very perfectly frank with you is that there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids that have been able to get into the zone because you've been eloquently able to explain it in such a way to folks like myself, explain it in such a way in videos and in books that just allow kids to get it. So what do you think about the lives you've impacted and where do you think this is going to kind of go now knowing that you're focusing more on the coaching side of it rather than what you felt as a player getting in the zone? Well, first of all, that blows me away to hear that. And, you know, just does my heart good to hear that you're able to show this stuff to, to that many kids and that they can actually do it because what you're doing is really waking them up to this higher consciousness. And that can be taken on the court or off the court. And it's really something that will help in their own development as human beings. And, you know, they're, they're built to be this, they really are. They're built to be their full potential. And what you're giving them is an opportunity and a tool for actually experiencing their full potential. Uh, and these kids that go out and get in the zone for on that day at that time, that is a one-to-one experience of their full potential. And it's this unified field experience. It's this stuff that is so heavy in terms, they're so deep in, in how heavy it is that you don't need to go into that. You can just go into it from this idea that, Hey, let's get in the zone and let me show you how to do that. And then they sort of get captured by this sense of unity with the game. Whatever level they're playing, they could be beginners. I've shown beginners how to do this. And, and, but they're actually performing as well as they can perform just because of the system's dynamics of what's going on with their operating system. But they're also getting a chance to have a different perspective of what's going on in front of them and, and what's how they're competing and what they're competing to do. And it, it just makes the game look a little different and it makes it way more creative. You, mm. you don't get stuck in these, I have to do my forehand this way or my backhand this way. You sort of do all of these different creative moves that you can do or counter movements to make contact. And a lot of them look exactly like what we're teaching them to look like, but those are fine. The ones that are really exciting are the ones where they just sort of make something up along the way <laughs> to keep the ball from getting past our window. It goes in and they hit this shot that just, they kind of go, wow, did I do that? 
And as coaches, when we see that and we see them going out on the court and then sort of everything coming together instead of, oh, I got a weak forehand or my backhand sucks, you know, something like that. What you've got are these kids that are going out and bringing what they've got into its full potential and bringing it all together at one time while they're playing. And they might not win, but they still know that they played really to their best. And then they might win too. And then that's even, that's frosting on the cake then, you know? Yeah. And I think what was really neat, and I mean, you said this in the book and I'd love to get your take on it is you mentioned that flow experiences don't happen arbitrarily, but are caused by something real. Yes. Can you elaborate on what you believe causes this type of flow state to occur? Sure. There's causal processes that we use to play the game of tennis. Let's just use that. One of the causal processes is to watch the ball and concentrate on it and then hit up. It just watch the ball, hit the ball. That's actually a serial mode process where you're actually setting your system to respond and react to what's going on in front of you by seeing it from one point to another point to another point. So you're actually seeing the ball in a sequence of contact, you know, a point here, a point here. It's just called um, serial point tracking. Okay. Variable, Variable depth of focus tracking where I'm starting off watching the ball in far vision and then I have to refocus my eyes to near vision as fast as the ball gets there. Otherwise I'm gonna be late. Right. You know, you're one of those guys that was fortunate enough to have like 185 mile an hour serve. And I had, (laughs) I've stood in front of it a few times and gone, whoa, you know, but I've also been able to get my racket on it and, and, and return some of them. And I think if I played a lot at that speed, I'd get onto it again, because just the, the process, I don't watch the ball from where you hit it. By the time I can refocus to where it is, it's already by me. So it's just that much of a problem but this soft focus and watching your window is what's called a parallel mode process parallel mode okay yeah yeah and that's really the the causal process for a non-dual experience it's it's parallel process is also a non-dual process that has a non-dual outcome so you've got a non-dual cause non-dual effect and the non-dual effect is this experience of playing in the zone. And I've never had anybody shift over to a parallel mode and not get in the zone. Mm. Never. 100% success rate. But I've had people get into the zone using a parallel mode process and say, I'm in the zone, but I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go back to my serial mode process, which I'm comfortable with which I grew up with and which I got really damn good with. Yep. You were a D1 player with a serial mode process. So was I. Right. Okay. And I wish that I could would have known this. I mean, I got in the zone occasionally when I was in college and I won matches I probably shouldn't have won. But I also didn't know how I did it. And you've probably had the same thing happen in your college career. You'd all of a sudden, you know, you'd be playing against somebody and just boom, something happened and you just go off and you just get into this different domain of playing the game of tennis and the other people just don't know what to do 
Right. It's, it's they're trying to compete against this huge source of energy coming at them that's just totally cohesive, coherent. It's functionally fitting with every ball coming at them. You're doing what you need to do. And all this stuff happens because of your causal playing process. That's what grounds you to the field. Mm. And your grounding, your non-dual grounding is much more inclusive and expansive and comprehensive than your dualistic grounding. And you can even think, I mean, I've, I've modeled this down to the watch the ball, hit the ball is a two-dimensional game. Ball, you. Yep. Me in the present, ball in the past. Yep. Parallel mode processes like watch the window, defend the window is three-dimensional. I'm watching my window. That's the future, future contact zone. I'm in the present and I'm seeing the ball come to my window. So I'm seeing the past and the future equally and simultaneously. That puts me in the present mentally while my body's in the present physically. So you've got this mind-body unity in flowing presence. That's a very heavy-duty place to be. And you're going to play well if you can get there. You don't even have to worry about playing. It's effortless. You're right. just in the flowing present and kind of having fun. <laughs> that's that's, nice I mean, that's... It's way fun. <laughs> that's absolutely true. It's, it is much more fun to, to be present and in the zone. And it's interesting because one thing that I can resonate to, to kind of complement what happens when you're, you know, the, the future and the past are met in the present with the window. I actually experienced that same type of in the zone moment through a fence in high school coaching. There are changeovers, a 90-second changeover that you can have during throughout the match to where you have a chance to talk to these athletes and, you know, help them either continue what they're doing or to mm -hmm. get them out of a bind if they're not, you know, playing the way that they want to. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting, Scott, because a lot of times when I came to the fence in my earlier years of coaching and I was, and I was coaching at them, meaning coming in a reactionary state and saying, well, why aren't you poaching or why isn't the elbow up on the overhead and so on and so forth. I actually was, was putting that player into even more of a detrimental situation because they felt like what they were doing was not accepting or I, I was um, upset with them. And that's what I considered coaching at them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where I where I totally made a turn in my in my career, whether it was coaching or business and, and life in general, is when again I led with an open ended question. Yes. You know, how are you? What can I do for you? Those types of open ended questions, just as much as the built to be question allows that disarming to happen so that we are now both present and we can have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I believe the, the concepts that I learned about being in the zone helped me be a better communicator 
as a coach. And I'm just curious if, as we talked through that, does it make sense or is it something that you can resonate to yourself with your coaching style and to allow people to understand this concept because you're not coaching at them, but you're coaching with them? Yeah, I like the open-ended question because what it allows is you've got this subjective player who's all messed up. He's, he's, he's just confused. He's doing stuff. And that open-ended question allows them to step back a little bit and look at it objectively. Mm. And, and boy, once they do that, then they can see that, okay, I am not the confusion. You know, here's an objective look at all of this confusion. I'm not feeling good. I feel like I'm not playing up to my potential, whatever they might be feeling. And you can, you can allow them to then answer their own problem and, and look at their own problems objectively within a 90 second span. And I really like the idea of instead of telling them what they need to do, asking them what's going on with them. And, and it just, turns the table back over onto them and lets them be the problem solvers instead of the coach solving their problem for them. And, you know, the coach will solve a problem for them all day long. They may not be capable of doing what the coach is asking them to do, but a kid may not want to poach. He may not be any good at it. He may be scared to poach. And if the coach is going, why in the hell aren't you poaching? You know, the guy's yeah. got a crappy backhand. Why aren't you poaching? Kids going to start feeling guilty. Like I'm not living up to my coach's dream of me. Right. Well, um, if you talk to me, open up the question and they'll be going, Oh geez, I just don't feel like coaching, you know, or poaching. I don't, I, I just don't, I can't do it today. Okay. And you go, yeah. So don't worry about it. Yep. <laughs> and they go back out on the court and they go, I don't have to try to please my coach now and poach when I'm not a very good at poaching. So it just, yes, it does resonate with me very much because what you're doing is you're allowing them to be present with their problem uh. instead of you defining the problem. And then it's in their past. Right. Okay? And they're trying to take it forward into the present of their play and it ain't going to work. It, well, it will, but it not very well. No. And what you're doing is allowing them to be present with their problem so that when they go back out, they've been present with their problem and they know what's going on now. And they're, they're going to be able to be present with what's going on right now on the field. So, you know, that that's a long answer for a very short answer, which is, yes, I resonate with what you're saying and keep doing it. And then, the, and then get better at the questions you ask. Right. Yes, yes, and that's that's where you grow as you grow up as a tier two coach. You're growing into being able to see the kind of questions that need to be asked uh, in those 90 seconds and then asking them quickly and succinctly so you don't take up 90 seconds blabbering about it like I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's absolutely. And I think that's a, a great reference for the listener, Scott, to, to walk them through some of the, some of the tier one uh, concepts. And I'm glad that the open-ended questions resonate with you. And I, I'd love for you to share with the listeners a little bit, going back to just kind of fast moving ball sports in general, I remember you shared some pretty telling statistics on what the human eye is capable of doing when it comes to 
a serve coming at you or a baseball coming at you that you're trying to hit that Mm -hmm. we have a particular set of limitations just based off of how our eye is designed. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to a little bit about how the window has, you know, kind of overcome some of those potential limitations of what our eyes can truly see? Okay, this is really gets down to to some of the nitty gritty of the process that you're using, because um, the difference between what I call a variable depth of focus input pattern, where your eyes are inputting information to your brain about what's going on in front of you, and you're, you're zeroing in on the ball, so your eye is giving information to your brain about the speed and direction of the ball. Well... The direction of the ball is easy because your eyes rotate toward the, and show the, your brain the direction of the ball. It's going this way. The lens of your eye, which is flat in far vision and bulges forward, if I can see the, the yeah. eyes flat and then it bulges forward in near vision. Well, that's called a movement of accommodation and it takes time to refocus your eyes. And if a service coming at you at like 100 miles an hour, you've got less than half a second to make contact with it. It gets your contact zone in less than half a second. Mm-hmm. Well, it takes your eyes to actually recognize the bounce of the ball. Let's say you're watching for the bounce. It takes a third of a second for your eyes to actually register the bounce in your brain. And your eyes stay there. Mm. And then it goes, oops, ball's not there anymore. And you go to find it, and it's too late. So you're going to be late on contact. Your last measurement is the bounce of the ball. But when you've got the window, the ball bounces in front of the window. You don't focus on that. You look for the contact point on your window, and the ball comes right into focus at your contact point, at your window. And that, and you're hitting that point. You're making contact there. So you're actually trying to contact the contact point. And that's a different way of thinking about what you're trying to do. I'm competing with different contact points in my contact zone, which is a big area of nothing. So I'm really competing against nothing, but I'm competing with my contact zone. Right. And what really translated that for me when, when you first told me that was I, I grew up 80s early 90s and I loved my Atari and I loved to play this game called Pong. Pong. And being able to be this bar that yeah. can defend a ball as yeah. I'm I'm tracking and defending the ball, I resonated with the Pong paddle to being the area of nothingness that I'm defending. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you been able to through your coaching experience and watching players get into the zone, use those types of gaming references to allow them to understand the concept better. I used Pong till I was purple. (laughs) (laughs) I can remember even playing Pong when it first came out and going, wow, this is fun. I I can do this. (laughs) And, you know, problem was I was, that was also when I was drinking and doing drugs. So it was like, wow, this is fun. And I just can't find where my car is parked. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's, right. It was really one of those things, but I, I love that analogy. I always use the idea of a wall. Yeah. Okay. When I was hitting against a wall, I, I would, 
kind of go, what if there was a guy on the other side of the wall and he was making his racket go flat against the wall at the same time my ball got there? Yeah, none of I'm, us like to play with, against a human wall, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, is this guy ever going to miss? <laughs> no, I never miss. You know, I just keep hitting it here and it keeps going back over. And in my lessons, it was sort of like I, we'd do playing lessons. And I would never like, I would never try to do anything other than just hit my window and keep it coming back. And the other person would make a mistake. And invariably, they'd try to put it away or do something like, you know, do something fancy and stuff that, really we had nothing to do with just plain old being consistent. That's like rule number one is make positive contact. Ball goes in, now it's his problem. And I always thought that the wall did that really well. No matter what I'd throw at the wall, it would come back at me. Right. And then I would just put a wall in front of myself with this imaginary window and I would hit against the wall for hours just developing my ability to stay focused on the window and not focus on my ball hitting the wall. Uh Because once I do that, I'm in far focus, far vision, and then I'd have to refocus back, which is fine if you're just dinking it. But if you're hitting it hard, you can't get your eyes back in time. You can leave your eyes here, hit it really hard against the wall, and boy, there it is coming again, and you're ready for it. So there's this whole idea of I am anticipating whatever is coming at me because they're going to have to hit it through my window. And then if they're going to hit it over the top, I just back my window up so the ball doesn't get over the top of my window. And I just hit it there. So, you know, it works for everything. It works for direction and placement. You can turn your window one way and hit a cross-court forehand. You can turn it the other way, hit a cross-court backhand. You can tip it up and hit lobs. You can slice down it, come up and do topspin. There's all sorts of things that you can do using this visual image. And while you're doing that, let's say you're working on your forehand topspin technique. Well, you can work on it by thinking about your forehand topspin technique, or you can just use your stroke to come straight up your window and and learn your topspin that way. Well, part of it is that you're then in a non-dual state of learning. It's called, it, they used to have a name for it. It's called super learning. Okay. And, and you're in this super learning state that you, you just learn by experience really fast instead of by me taking and tearing the stroke apart into 85 different parts and saying, you know, this part of your stroke was off. Well, you know, you'd hit 10 balls at a person and you're not, stopping and hitting one ball and then hitting them another ball another one you're rallying back and forth most of their technical errors are due to bad timing it's like if i'm hitting a ball out here Uh. at at my front window my technique is going to be different than if i hit it at a two or back here at a one and you go oh i didn't get my elbow forward well no your timing was awful and that made your technique awful so one of the things that right. we've all, yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's technique and timing together. So I, I've always found that if we work on timing first, yes, then you've got a perfectly timed stroke that needs technical assistance. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what's, I mean, technique. all of the coaching that I see recently, Scott, is it's more about spacing and timing mm-hmm. than it yeah. is the technical component, because you, you watch the guys and the gals playing at the highest level, 
look at how unconventional some of these shots look, mm-hmm. but they have mastered spacing and timing. Yes. What are your yeah, thoughts it, there? It had to happen because of the speed of the game. Yeah. You know, you could get away with a lot of stuff back with the wooden rackets and you didn't have to have this really good spacing and really good timing. You could, you, if you had good timing, that was always a plus, but the techniques back when I was growing up, they were very linear. There wasn't any of this turn, you know, it, all of the stuff that makes my body ache just to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the right way to do it. And so I like Kendall teach all of that stuff because he 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 does all of that. And then <laughs> I come in with his own stuff. And we and and it's really a very effective way to teach because Kendall Kendall is now teaching modern technique using the window as a reference point at all times. Right. And when he's doing that, then he's coming up with all of these wonderful drills that will, will help players to do this. And then you throw them out in competition and watch what happens because some of them will stay with it and others will go back to, I just can't lose to this guy and I'm going to just beat him, you know, and then they end up playing crappy and they get mad at and they blame it on us. And, you know, it's, it's really a thing where we're challenging them to play a non-dual version of tennis versus their normal dualistic version. Now that gets down to the, into the weeds of what's going on. But the reason they have trouble is that it's very hard for teenagers to get out of this dualistic egotistical state that they're in and very narcissistic about all of this kind of stuff. Well, this is the opposite of nar- narcissism. You're taking them and then you're putting them competing against nothing instead of me competing against Billy on the other side of the net, who's my arch enemy. You know? Right. Right. I mean, but there's so many variables with that. And that's the thing that I appreciate so much about the imaginary pane of glass, because you're eliminating so many other distractions that the sport can carry. And it's just, it's so important that we draw parallels in this conversation back to the listeners on, you've taken a very complicated game it can be perceived as complicated and you've really simplified it but in order to simplify it it takes a fixed focus that has to be trained has to be repped has to be um learned and and reinforced over and over and over to get into that zone and i just believe yeah yeah let me, let me, for your audience, for your listeners, there's, there's a real simple thing you can do that has to do with your visual field. Wherever you are right now, you've got a full visual field in front of you. I have everybody put their finger out in front of them and just kind of focus on your finger. And yep. you'll see that on the other side of your finger is the rest of your visual field. And then you just leave your focus on your finger. And instead of trying to see the different things that are in your visual field, just look at your whole visual field at once. All right. And in order to do that, you have to do a soft focus. It's also called open focus. It's also called panoramic vision. Uh. You use the term fixed depth of focus because you want to intentionally use soft focus at this depth in front of you. So you're focusing on your window and it's a soft focus on your window that remains fixed throughout the point. And you use that as your reference for where you're gonna make contact on every ball. 
And when you do that, your timing is perfect. Mm. Your technique may, you know, not be what you want it to be, but if your bracket is flat against your window, it's going back over the net. Mm. And you've always played, you've always played against this guy that never misses. And it's sort of like, yes. oh my, what am I going to do with this guy? And we call them pushers or dinkers <laughs> or whatever, gave them bad names when in fact they're doing the same thing that Nadal and Federer do to Nadal and Federer just do it at a higher level. You know, they're, they're world-class pushers. And I, I, I know that sounds terrible, but they are pushing the ball very fast, but they never miss. And it's one of that's their strategy. Number one, you know, I'm, I'm not going to miss pal. Are you? And then it gets into the anxiety of its tie break in the third set. And it's like five all Yeah. and my serve and I have a chance to win. Well, that's the worst thing you can think right then. What you want to be doing is thinking, I want to just keep playing like I'm playing and doing what I'm doing and staying with how I'm concentrating and staying relaxed and in the flow. Yep. And I'm just going to keep doing that. And if the other guy beats me, great. If he doesn't beat me, well, then great for me. Right. Because I've done this through actually controlling and letting go of ego. Ah. And my authentic self play the game. And, you know, playing in the zone is like playing with soul. Right. And just that idea, because we've all had these magical, mystical experiences. And every everybody that plays tennis gets in the zone some point or another. And I've never had anybody get in the zone and go, Jesus, that was awful. I don't ever want to do that again. You know, they always want to do it again. Now, they'll try to do it and they can continue to get better and better and better at it, but they have to practice it and they can't practice this and then say, okay, now I got it and go back to the other way they played because that's going from a parallel mode of operation to a serial mode of operation. Mm. And if you just think about computers, boy, parallel processing is way better than serial processing. And the brain kind of does that too. Right. So it's just mm -hmm. unbelievably fascinating. The, as you mentioned, I mean, as much as it can be a fixed or a, a, a simple concept, all of the, the nuances and intricacies behind it to, to, to have an understanding of the why it's, it's mm -hmm. effective and how we get in the zone, I think is just a incredibly powerful, um, incredibly powerful testament to just the, the years of work that you've put into understanding and being a student of mm -hmm. being in the, in the zone and flow state. Um, yeah. but also too a testament to, you know, what you've been doing since that lesson many years back when you're trying to keep those four kids in line that mm -hmm. look at where it's evolved to today. And, and Scott, I just want to leave you with, with one last question. And I would like to, kind of have a statement before I ask the question just to kind of set some reference around this. But I mean, listen, you've, you've written multiple books. You've been able to be on the court with thousands and thousands of people, including myself. You've been able to overcome addiction. And I know that that's something that is probably still a daily battle and something that everybody is always you know, telling me based off of my experience of being a child of an alcoholic that always being present is key for overcoming addiction. And I feel like always being present is the key to success in life. With that said, you know, I want you to 
kind of go back to, you know, maybe that moment before you became a pro in Aspen or a moment where you kind of knew you needed some mentorship, you needed some words of advice and knowing what you know now, being the coach you are, the person you are, you know, the mentor you are, if you could go back to that moment and give yourself some advice, give yourself some words of wisdom on how to live life based off of what you know now, what would you say to yourself? I, I know exactly that moment in my junior career where that statement was made to me by Jock Miller, head pro, Cherry Hills Country Club. He drove the coolest red convertible car. And this is back when Jake Ward was playing. Oh, yeah. Jock, Jock hired me to play Jake Ward every day of the summer. Oh, and wow. every day of the summer, Jake Ward beat me. And I was good, and he was like the 12 and under national champ. He was this little guy that was real husky and just a great player. And all of a sudden, he would just turn on. You know, I'd be ahead of him 5-1, 5-2, 5-3. Never beat him a set all uh, summer. And Jock told me, Scott, if you ever win a set from him, you can drive my little red <laughs> fancy thing. So I had this urge to win. And But what I, what I really learned not from playing with Jake, but from what Jock Miller said. He said, Scott, if you could compete like you practice, you'd be a much better competitor. Mm. So that every tennis player has, has felt this. You're warming up and you feel great. Then all of a sudden they go, let's keep score. And something happens to us where we take on a different persona. There's this practice persona that's just free and easy, getting your strokes warmed up, feeling good, you know, getting on contact, all that stuff. And then they go, let's keep score. And this competitive persona comes out that needs to win, wants to win, doesn't want to keep practicing, but wants to compete, you know? And, and, and that, that made a lot of difference to me when I started competing, I, what I would do is I'd think practice competition. I'm going to practice competing. Mm. So I would do that. And now that, that got to the point where I found that when I'm practicing playing in the zone on purpose, that's my practice, that it's a competition between my ego and my soul. Mm. And what I try to do is get into the zone and just let my soul play the game. And my, my ego is still there. It's still seeing what's happening, but it's not focused on it. It's not coming out. It's sort of in the background. And that's really where I feel like I'm doing what this guy way back when mentored me to do. He said, you got to start competing like you practice. So when I'm playing in the zone, I'm practicing competing in the zone, competing with my soul. Uh, and it's a competition, believe me, because your ego doesn't want to let go. Your ego wants to say, oh, this is <laughs> bull. You're just doing crap. 
you know, get back to letting me be in control. And you just kind of go, nope, that's, that's the big battle. You know, Buddha called it <laughs> some of these, the battle with yourself is the greatest battle of all. You know, if you can win that, that's the one. And so teaching competition is really fun when, yes. you're, when you're teaching people how to play in the zone. And you've done this enough to know that, boy, your ego wants to pull you back to where you're comfortable. And being in the zone is not, to me, it's a comfort zone now, but at first it wasn't. It wasn't my comfort zone. Now it's my comfort zone, but I'm still pushing. I'm still expanding. Right. And that, that's sort of that I, just lifelong learner, you know, one of those people. Hey, I mean, if you're not learning, then what's the point? I, I tremendous testament to your want and desire to continue to, to grow and get better yourself. And Mm -hmm. I feel the same way, Scott, as if I'm not, if I'm not getting better, if I'm not learning every day, if I'm not pushing myself, how can I expect to help somebody else push themselves? Um, Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the interesting things about um, just the, in the theory of flow and just flow psychology and all that stuff. There's a thing called the challenge to skills balance. Now, when you start getting in the zone, um, that's the challenge. You've got the skills. You know, you just have to learn to shift your focus and do all of these different processes. But the skills are there, and they're always balanced with how much you're learning to do this. It's always asking you to do more, to do more, to do more. And as you do more, your the challenge is still there but your skills expand as you get better. And it's just, it's so simple. It's like you, you learn how to do this practice and then you just practice it and you're going to get better at it. But the, the ramifications of you getting better at your own non-dual human development are immense. Uh. What that will do in your life. It's not just non-dual tennis development. It's non-dual human development. And that human being is going to be out there being something. Well, if you can be the non-dual version of that something, then what you're doing is maximizing your own potential in life. Uh. And that's a cool way to go through life. And knowing that that challenge is there every single day you wake up and you go out there, you do this all the time. And you're, that's now your comfort zone. But you see how it ain't that comfortable? No. <laughs> no, it's not. No. And, you know, I actually know the King's English, and it shouldn't be ain't that. It's it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Scott, I just, unbelievable wise words, and I appreciate the uh, the ability to reflect and, and really tie together nicely the, the passion that you have, the unbelievable expertise that you have, and how you're helping others get into the zone and wake up, grow up, rise up. The evolution of coaching consciousness is something that I've been able to pre-read, but I'd love for you to share with the listeners about when we could maybe expect to, to see that book and how the listeners can find you. Um, I'm doing a big reformatting of my websites and all of the stuff that I've got out there. Yeah. Um, I'm even getting a new publisher for my books and that's all just going under the process. But okay. as time goes on, um, it, the word, I'll get the word out and, and what's going on and I'll let you know, but I'm going to still have the tennis in the zone.com website. That's going to be my main website. And then I'm going to incorporate 
the integral consciousness or the Scott A. Ford website, which is all about integral consciousness and in sport. Yep. The Tennis in the Zone is about the book Welcome to the Zone. And then the next part is going to be the portion that's about Wooguru, the book. And it'll be some online lessons and, and coursework that we're putting together. So right now I'm a I'm I'm in empty space. Man. I'm I'm just looking for the potential ways to use artificial intelligence to use chat gpt to yep. use different ways of putting this stuff together and i'm i'm learning about it so i'm i'm doing what i need to do to try to get this out there to more coaches if you want to know that i i'm very interested in coaching other coaches mm. in these tier 2 um methodologies Mm. And, and so this is that's what Wooguru is about and we'll continue it from there but i i can't say probably you know the the end of this year if if hopefully i'd like to say the end of the summer but that ain't gonna happen so, <laughs> hey nonetheless know, kendall and i kendall and i are working together on some stuff so awesome all of that is happening you know so i don't know we'll see excellent well, Scott Ford, it's been a tremendous honor. You are one of the best coaches in the country. You're a tremendous mentor to me, uh, an incredible friend. Um, how much you've given back, I, I can't thank you enough and appreciate the time that you've spent with me today on the BTB project. Thank you. Well, good good luck to you, Coleman, on the BTB project. You are, again, you're on the forefront, man, and it's kind of scary. But, you know, do it. You, you've got a great background to do this. And you can always look at your own experience going forward because you paid your dues in a lot of ways that have allowed you to become who you are. But you're still becoming more. And and I like that. I, I think that's a real reflection of what this whole tier two human development and human evolution is about. And you're very integrated with all of the technologies and the stuff that are that that's also part of the tier two. It's like not just humans, it's techno human interfaces that are happening. And you're doing really well with that with the podcast and all of the stuff. So good luck to you and anything I can do to help you out. You just let me know, pal. Excellent. Well, again, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for encouraging the listeners today and appreciate your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah,